and as uh, Xavier and I were in the rib cook-off at the county fair yesterday, he he's worked with me from time to time with the, the smoker, and, and I decided, you know, it could be a little fun, and a lot of people don't enter the rib cook-off, so maybe he'd have a chance to to earn a little money, learning a, a useful skill, and and we're out there, and and in the back of my mind, I'm I'm thinking about today's message, and and how I I wanted to just go on from the wedding straight into the a very quick breakdown of the law, and. And then move into the lessons from the desert when, when Israel refuses to take God at his word, believing they can conquer the promised land. And they get to go wander the desert where God really says, hey, I'm going to reveal myself to you and I'm going to teach you who I am. So the next time we come to this problem, it won't be a problem because you'll really know who I am. But we, we can't get there without this part of the narrative and i i'm i'm not calling it a story anymore because a lot of times when we hear story the world hears story they treat it like it didn't happen and this is a narrative from genesis to revelation is a narrative to help us understand who god is and where we are in time and who we are to him and uh Last week we got to participate in a wedding, and it was it was really fun because I was standing with uh, the coordinator of the wedding and asking what all I needed to help carry out after the service so that it wouldn't get left back here in the dark. And, and they're like, "Oh well, we got to come back and get the arch." And I said, "That's not an arch." And she's like, "What?" I said, "That's a hoopah." And she's like, "What? What?" I said, "You're gonna have to go back and catch." last week's message at church and she just kind of looked at me like what like I had three heads and and then I explained to her what it was and what it represents and she's like I will never look at that part of a wedding the same way and I was like well praise God neither will I because I only learned it a week before you <laughs> but uh, the the story of the golden calf it's an uncomfortable story because it, it really does show the the struggle of humanity and how I don't know I'm simple I'm just going to use the word stupid how stupid we can be sometimes and and we'll get into that and I'm going to criticize some people in scripture pretty harshly but at the the same time that I criticize them I want you to understand I'm just as stupid as they are and I won't give all of those examples but if you need them just refer to my wife she'll tell you but in Exodus 31 is where we're going to pick up and, and that's something where we're jumping through bigger chunks of scripture so I hope you're reading on your own if you're not let me take the teacher approach to this shame on you you need to be reading on your own uh, especially when we cover the law because I'm not going to go through the law by line by line by line by line because I believe in grace and I, I covered, you know, one of the main laws I wanted you to know, the one about the stiff-necked donkey. I mean, everyone needs that law in their life. You really do. It's, you know, anyway. <clears throat> but 
And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, maybe that sets off bells for you thinking back to the plagues. Maybe not, but it was somewhere around the seventh or the eighth plague when the high priests of Egypt were no longer able to replicate what was going on. They tried to get Pharaoh's attention and they said, you need to understand, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God at work. The, the high priests were, of Egypt were deathly afraid of the full hand of God being unleashed. That, that's why they referenced the plagues. And they were talking, I want to say it was specifically the, the hailstones with fire. They said, this is the finger of God. And if it's just the finger, can you imagine what he'd do with his whole hand? And we get that same reference where that, that finger was a finger of judgment and of, of what we like to throw out there as wrath, where honestly it was you know, God just showing to be exceptional and to be a God like no other. But he took his finger and he wrote the entirety of, and this doesn't even call it the law, it calls it the testimony. And telling the story of how our relationship's going to go. Last week we talked about that, that being the, the marriage vows between God and his people. He wrote them with his own hand. If that's not the sign of someone who loves you, uh, I hate the fact that, that I'm not a person who sits down purposefully and handwrites love letters to my wife anymore. I just send her those wonderful cheating texts with emoji, you know, like, you know, hi, hon, I love you. Kissy face, kissy face. And just so you know, if you're one of the older people in the crowd, Siri will not put those in for you. You know, if you tell Siri, hey, type this for me, you know, she'll just write, she will put in words, kiss face emoji. And I don't know, maybe she's getting better, maybe not. I don't trust Siri because she makes me say some really dumb and awful things because she doesn't speak redneck, okay? But... God took the time to write these himself and he gave them to Moses. And then we get to people being people. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, meaning he was sitting down, up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, <laughs> this Moses, you know, he's, he's just distant memory. You know, what has he done for us lately? This Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We don't know what's happened. Okay, are you ready for the facts? If you've done all the reading, you know the facts. If you haven't, well, you get to go back and read it. But the, the phrase they use is, he's delayed. We don't know what's become of him. All right, you ready for delayed? And, and granted, this is not a super short period of time, but... Moses has only been gone 47 days. 47 days. And they can turn at any moment and look at the mountain of God and see the cloud sitting on the mountain. It's not hard to know where Moses is. But these people, 
They want somebody right here, right in front of them, holding their hand, smashing up their baby food and spooning it to them. Okay, I, I, I'm not doing this as a, a referendum on American Christianity, but it really does fit. The reason American Christianity is not growing and thriving like other parts of the world. Other parts of the world, if you're a Christian, you have to grow up in the faith very quickly. Here in the U.S., we baby you along a long time because no one's walking in the back door with a sword and telling you to denounce Christ or I'll cut your head off. The rest of the world, just for mentioning Christ, you may get your head cut off. 47 days. I think sometimes we have the same problem. Well, you know, pastor preaching that same series. I don't even want to go today. He's been preaching it for 47 days. 47 days. That's most of the calendar year of Sundays. But these people were there 47 days. They're still getting manna. They're still getting quail. They're still physically being taken care of by the God of the universe. But we don't see Moses. We don't know where he is. Where could he be? He's been gone forever. He's like a distant memory. Have any of you ever forgot somebody in 47 days? 47 days. Wow. I mean, that's, that's like 28 days longer than most church camp dating relationships. But the first six days, Moses waited at the edge of the mountain. So for six days, he's still visible at the edge of the mountain. And the seventh day, God says, come on up here. I want to talk with you. So Moses is really only gone 41 days out of their sight. But I can tell you this. I'm a preacher, and if I didn't have the notes to cheat off of, I couldn't tell you what I preached 41 days ago. So I'm going to cut him a little bit of slack. And Moses and Joshua goes, but nobody mentions Joshua. Joshua's not the celebrity. Moses is a celebrity and he disappeared. So we're going to go to the next guy in line, Aaron. And that just shocks me with Sunday school that Aaron does not get kicked out of the line of priests for what he's about to do. So Aaron says to them, oh, you want a God? Okay, take off all your rings of gold. Take the ears. Take the rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons. Okay, they were a little more liberal. No. Oh, anyway. Uh, and, and bring them to me. And, and he took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, modern times, and a lot of us deal with cattle, I, I think it's fair to say we would never pick a calf to be our God. Not going to happen. You know, we, we believe calves, you know, can be sacrificed on the fire as a ribeye very well after they've grown a few thousand pounds. And, um, but, you know, here's an illustration of what's to come. But, I mean, you look at that golden calf. I look at it and I think, man, it's just beautiful. No, not really. There, there's no way in my mind that I could see what these people saw God do in Egypt and just decide, hey, 
that that's done. We're just going to throw our gold in the fire. And, and Aaron actually says this to Moses. This is the excuse he'll give later. Hey, I threw all that in the fire and out came this calf. I, I mean, you want to talk about people being people. <clears throat> How many times do we chase after the, the next thing? How many times do we do we find that, well, God, you're not answering my prayer the way I think you should, so I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take the stuff that I have and, and I'm going to make sure that, you know, I, I just use this stuff to take care of the problem rather than waiting on you for the answer. Because the stuff became more important to them than the Word of God that was coming to them. This is a story about patience more than anything else. Because how many times are we just as guilty? How many times do we, we count on our own talent, our own ability, our own stuff, instead of waiting for God to step in and answer? And trust me, I'm preaching at me just as much as anyone else. So if this is hitting you, it's hitting me too. And Aaron goes on, when he saw this, he built an altar before it. See the process of how this goes. That they, they decided that they were easily convinced they'd been abandoned. So they went after using their own stuff to make and to fill in the needs. And then it immediately leads to an altar of worship. It is not a long step from hard work and, and sacrifice to acquire stuff to an altar worshiping that stuff. It's not a long trip. And we fall into it a lot. I, I think we, we, because I do it too, we, we judge these people pretty harshly, but it's what they knew. We see it all around us. The world we live in is all about get all you can. Get, get this stuff. Get this newest thing. Get the, get the ultra-wide 5G. Get the bundling your car and home insurance. I, I can almost quote you commercials from football games yesterday. You know, drink this beer. It'll make you skinny pretty in the life of the party. You know, that, oh, what's that one that's driving me nuts? The Arby's commercial. Wee, wee, they flip the wings. What's Arby's doing making wings? They're a sandwich place. Anyway, but they wanted this because now, hey, we have something to worship and because we've got everything we wanted, it's time to have a big feast and to eat, drink, and be merry. And they start up a big party. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I like the way that phrases it. They corrupted themselves. Because if you go back to the marriage that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, one of the things that happened was Moses sanctified them before he went up on the mountain. So he had consecrated them. He had set them apart. And in his absence, they corrupted themselves. And they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and, these, and said, these are your gods, O Israel. And I want you to understand, sacrifice in that day would begin with just animal sacrifice, 
But I'm telling you, as they would walk down that, because one of the gods that is represented with a calf or a cow animal in the ancient world is Baal, and they're steadily walking the path to child sacrifice. Okay, I'm just telling you that from a history standpoint. That is not, you're not going to see that in the line of the text of the scripture. We don't run into child sacrifice again until we deal with the deity of Molech, which Molech is... Uh, anyways, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. I could. If you want to do an interesting study on a false god, Molech is your guy. Uh, but picking back up here in Scripture, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, just like our donkey, except he's a broke neck. These are stiff-necked. And now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I struggled with that because all along the narrative of God has been that he's, he's full of mercy. Even when he acts in judgment, it is in mercy. And, and right here, God is testing Moses because if he says, I'm going to wipe them all out and start over with you, God would be in direct violation of his covenant. There's a reason I believe firmly that God is testing Moses in this moment. And we're going to see later that Moses will be tested again and again and again. And there's a reason Moses won't go to the promised land. And it's because what's really buried deep in the heart of Moses is not the the full nature of who God is and but here's a moment where Moses shows great potential and Moses employed implored of the Lord and said God oh Lord why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out and kill them in the mountains to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Part of the reason that Moses was in this position is God knew that Moses would hold God to his word. If you want to be the Moses to your household, you have to know the Word of God and be able to speak the Word of God to the Creator Himself. You have to speak it to your family, but you have to be able to speak it to God as you stand in the gap as Moses did. The, the struggle with our world today is no one is standing in the gap anymore. We, we don't intercede for the lost. It doesn't break our heart that they're down there worshiping the golden calf in their stupidity, in their ignorance. It doesn't break our heart. We look at them with the eyes of, well, well, they shouldn't be that way. They're breaking God's word. Instead of saying, God, I know that they're breaking your law, but I know you according to your law that you're full of grace and you're full of rich mercy and unending love for them. 
and that your son died on the cross for them. And then we go to them and remind them that Jesus died on the cross for them. We don't identify them by their sin. We identify them by who they are. They're a child of God who has not yet stepped into their role in the kingdom because they're hiding behind an identity of sin the world has forced upon them. We're called to be the light in the darkness. And you know what the light of the world is according to the Bible? The Bible itself. The psalmist David wrote, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the light that shines in the darkness of my own life so that I can walk the path that you've set out for me. It's the light that I'm supposed to take to others who are sitting in the dark so they can see and they can take that light for themselves and begin walking the path that you've called them to. We're called to speak God's word first and foremost back to God. You want to pray powerfully? Learn to pray the Word of God and to trust God and to take Him at His Word. Exodus 32, 14, one of the most powerful scriptures in Exodus. And the Lord relented from the disaster He had spoken on His people. He'd spoken of bringing this disaster. You know what I really pray is that that my unsaved friends, my unsaved students that walk in my classroom, I pray that God will wait another day. Wait another day. Give me one more day. God, let me love on them one more day. Maybe we'll break through today. God, let me speak life to them one more day. Just one more day. God, with my family, let me have one more day. With my dying breath, I'm going to ask for one more day. Because there's going to be somebody that doesn't know. And Moses went down the mountain. Oh. Can you imagine having that conversation? He just stood up to the creator of the universe. And now he's got to go down and deal with these people. I, I totally get why he shattered the stones. I get it now. I, I used to think Moses was just a hothead. But can you imagine coming down and seeing what he sees? He's taking the tablets, the very writing of God. The finger of God wrote these tablets. They're the most precious thing in the world. And he gets down and they're almost there. And Joshua hears the noise of the people. And Joshua, in case you don't know, is a general. He, he's not really just your average secretary. He is a guy that when we go fight people, Joshua is the commander-in-chief out there fighting. And, you know, he is not backing down from the fight. And he says, this sounds like a noise of war in the camp. But it's not the shouting of victory or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Can you imagine it? Thinking back to the wedding, you had those vows prepared. 
a spoken agreement you were going to make with your spouse. And you come down and she's, your bride is kissing some random dude that showed up at the wedding. I'm pretty sure if I had tablets to break at that moment, I would break them too. But it also shows something in Moses' heart that that we're going to deal with throughout the narrative of his life is that he never does quite let go of the staff of Egypt. That he let his anger rule over him. In the New Testament, we get the warning of be angry and sin not. And that's a struggle because anger is a powerful, powerful emotion. And it's a God-given emotion. So, so don't think I'm telling you you can't ever be mad. That's, that's almost as dumb as building a golden calf. Which, coincidentally, out in front of Wall Street's a grown-up golden calf, but another story. He took the calf they had made and he burned it with fire. And he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Hey, Kool-Aid. I, I had a hard time relating to that. But the Bible will explain it out later. And, and once, once you see this, it's like, that really does make sense. Why, why would he grind this calf into powder and make them drink it? We're not going to read the entirety of it, but if you want to look in Numbers chapter 5, Verses 11 through 31, it has the testing for an unfaithful wife. If a man believes his wife has cheated on him, he can bring her to the temple and the priest will go through this ceremony of sorts that includes her holding a, a grain offering in her hand as, as a sign of obedience and, and faithfulness to the Lord. But he takes dirt from the temple floor and he mixes it with water and they, they list it simply as holy water, but it's water from within the temple that's been sanctified and set apart. And he mixes it in and she drinks it. And if she's been unfaithful, it, it causes uh, a terrible uh, stomach issue. And a lot of people uh, in the traditional Jewish study said that uh, it causes infertility that she will no longer be able to bear children. And, and the, the husband can take her even if he's just, a spirit of jealousy is on him and he suspects it. Now, if she's done nothing wrong, the scripture says that nothing happens. And, and I looked at it and I thought, man, if we're talking about this being a marriage between God and Israel, and when Moses comes down, what's he do? He grinds it into powder and he makes them drink it. He makes them drink of the cup of the unfaithful wife before it was even a law. I mean, some really neat stuff in there. But I, I looked at it and I thought, Lord, how does, how does that fit? Because it, if it's a running part of the narrative, how does it fit for us? And... And God ends the, the entirety of this chapter, and we're wrapping it up this morning, with visiting plagues on them for making and worshiping the golden calf. And, and we don't like to talk about this because we, we misinterpret the, 
the scripture where we have freedom from being under the law. We, we tend to take it to where, you know, the blood of Jesus gives us a grace card that we can go do whatever we want. And that's not at all what the blood of Jesus gives you the freedom to do. It gives you the freedom from having to fulfill all the requirements of the law. It doesn't fulfill you from the law itself. So if you're going to put other gods before God, you're, you're still an unfaithful believer. And there will be consequences of your unfaithfulness. In my relationship with my wife, if I'm unfaithful to her, there will be consequences. And, and we, we tend to try and magically make those disappear because we're under the new covenant. You think the new covenant doesn't ask you to be faithful? In the new covenant, guess what? You're still called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving my neighbor as myself? Some of us do a stinky job of loving ourselves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. You tell me you think about God more than three times a day. I'm picking on myself here too. Because a lot of times, the, the most attention I give God is right before a meal when I ask Him to bless it. And I'm a preacher. I'm being real. If I'm not disciplined to maintain that relationship, I'm just like these people who were unfaithful. And there are consequences. There are consequences. I feel it in my mood. Things don't always go smooth at work, but I have a peace about them when I'm in good relationship with my Lord. When I'm not, I feel the overwhelming stress of it, and it's usually God allowing me to feel it so that I'll come back and be faithful. I'm not really intentionally cheating on Him, but there's other things that I do put ahead of Him because I'm a stupid human just like you. And we don't do it in like big chunks. We don't just say, ah, nope, not doing anything with God today. It's usually just small bites or small sips. I thought about calling this the golden calf and the sippy cup. But I refrained because we're not going back to sippy cups. But the cup of God's judgment of the unfaithful is still there. It's still there, and it would only be fulfilled when the law was fulfilled. Okay, the, the cup's still there. You can choose to drink from it by being unfaithful. Or just take a sip. Just take a sip. I got a funny story on taking a sip. I won't chase that rabbit today, though. The, the first time I tried dry white wine because my dad wanted me to know what Jesus served at communion and how Jesus didn't drink a lot because it was the driest white wine you've ever had. And I thought I was going to die because I took a Dr. Pepper sip, not a wine sip. I'm not a white wine guy at all. No, nope, not going to happen. But Jesus was faced, I believe, faced with the same cup. He went a little farther and he fell on his face praying, and this was in the garden. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but yours be done. Okay, Jesus knew all about these cups. These cups. The cup of, I'm not going to drink from this cup again until we're reunited in my Father's house. What a beautiful cup that is. This is the cup of testing whether you've been unfaithful. The cup of God's wrath. Jesus didn't want to drink that. He knew exactly the repercussions of it. Not because he'd been unfaithful, but he knew he was going to bear the sins of the world. And it left us with with a, a verse in Hebrews, since Hebrews chapter 12, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This says the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I like the King James. It says the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to understand that that cup that he drank of was all of the shame that you would ever bear in your life over the unfaithfulness you have towards God. Nothing in this message has been designed to bring shame on anyone. It's been simply shining a light and letting the Holy Spirit shine a light on our lives so that we can see where we're falling short, we can repent, and we can move on. Because that's, that's the beauty of the new covenant. Is that we're not, we don't have to go get three doves and bring them in and let me kill doves and throw them on a fire. We, we don't have to bring in a ram if the whole congregation blew it. We, we don't have to bring a calf once a year and roll back the sins for another year. We're given the opportunity to step right into the presence of God and say, God, this is where I'm falling short. I'm putting this ahead of you and I'm sorry for it. And you know what? He's not going to tell you shame on you. Because Jesus drank the cup of all the shame you would ever have to bear. He died the most shameful death you could die in that era of time. And he despised the shame that would hold us back from knowing him. Let's stop sipping of that cup today. And start drinking in the fullness of the Spirit of God through his word. And watch how much it changes you. You'll want to take the light into the dark places. You'll want to spend time with Jesus. You'll want to read His Word. You'll want to not only pray, but to be silent and to listen to hear Him speak to you. You'll want to sing His praises. You'll want to change the world.